They say there's an energy you can feel, even in the stones on the windswept Orkney Islands. So when you're standing there speaking to yourself at night and you can see the aurora borealis above you, it's something extremely special. Coming up, local guide Kinley Francis introduces us to the prehistoric megaliths and the Viking history that his fellow Arcadians take great pride in. Standing Stones of Stennis is about 1,500 years older than Stonehenge. The grandeur of the Austro-Hungarian Empire lives on in the elegant architecture of Budapest. A nighttime stroll along the Danube is an ideal way to admire its floodlit castle and bridges. Driving home maybe 11 in the evening and looking over to the castle district and see all the lights there are on. And I'm just saying how lucky one can be to live in Budapest. And listeners tell us when the kindness of strangers made all the difference in their travels. Insider views of Budapest, Orkney, and your travel tales are just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. They don't really have a tradition for wearing a family plaid or playing the bagpipes in the Orkney Islands of Scotland. In just a bit, we'll hear how an impressive collection of prehistoric standing stones helped to define the dramatic archipelago of 70 islands leaning into the North Sea, looking toward Norway. Sometimes you need to get away from Google and your phone and talk to complete strangers when you travel in another country. Listeners share their stories from when the kindness of strangers saved the day in their international travels. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves enjoying the views of one of Europe's magnificent capitals. The Danube River defines the two major halves of Budapest, and it's been a lifeline for Hungary in its more than 1,000-year history. We're joined now by two guides from Budapest who specialize in taking visitors around their beautiful city, Peter Poltzman and George Farkas. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. What does the Danube, the river, mean to the people of Budapest? George? I think it's uh, one of the places where locals love to come down. It doesn't have to be a tourist. One will come down and just enjoy the view, which I do every day. I'm just so appreciative, driving home maybe 11 in the evening and looking over to the castle district and see all the lights there are on. And I'm just saying how lucky one can be to live in Budapest. It's a beautiful sight, isn't it? Peter, how about you? What does the Danube mean to you? You have a body of water that you can always go back to. It can be a lake, it can be a river in, in any city, but uh, yeah, Budapest is blessed with the, with the river. And the other good thing is that it runs through the heart of the city because a lot of cities have got rivers just kind of way out of the city center. In Budapest, it's just right in there. And some cities do not face their rivers. The river comes through and it's almost a problem and they've turned their back to it. But it it feels to me Budapest faces its river, even though it is quite a wide river. Hey, the Danube runs through a lot of cities. There's Vienna, there's Bratislava, there's there's other capital cities there Mm -hmm. as well, and not necessarily defined by the river. But I think in Budapest, uh, the river really defines the city in many ways. George, today Budapest has striking bridges. I mean, uh, there's just mighty bridges. Describe the bridges that uh, define Budapest. I think I love them all. Um, uh, Obviously, the most famous one is the chain bridge that has so many legends uh, that we're uh, play with. For instance, one of them, we take the ladies over and uh, we believe if we have an honest one on our side, the lions will come alive. And we always make a joke that they've been resting for quite a bit. So they've got um, these big, you've got these big ceremonial right, lions yeah, at the end of the then, bridge. Yeah, you so just you take, take your girlfriend yeah. across there and uh, sadly, they don't come alive. No, they don't, <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid. And they always say, so, well, how about the man? And uh, we say, we, we can't have them working for the man because they'd be too busy and they would lose their voices. Oh. <laughs> so you've got very uh, important lions on your bridge. Right, yeah. And then they span over the river and, and obviously besides providing a connection, it gives you a chance to walk across and, and look from each side and enjoy them. Yeah. Really nice. 
And Peter, what do the bridges mean to you in Budapest? Um, there's two that I, I like particularly. One is Liberty Bridge. It's two bridges down from Chainbridge. And uh, I really like it because there's lots of youngsters sitting on, on that bridge all the time in the evening. So you turn around and you see all the lights. You see the entire city. And it's the same thing uh, with Margaret Bridge, which is one bridge up from Chainbridge. You just turn around and see the entire city. So that's a beautiful thing. I really like mm. the view. So when you go to Budapest, be sure to enjoy uh, the bridges. And remember, there's that passeggiata scene. Do you know the word passeggiata, paseo? Yeah, in Italy paseo and in, in, in Spain. Spain you know, yeah. People are out mm-hmm. strolling. What's the paseo thing in Budapest? Are people out in the beautiful early evening hours? They are, and I've got some good news for you because uh, the city is uh, very seriously talking about just going back to where it started from, which is uh, people walking along the riverbanks. So uh, they will be uh, rejuvenating a lot of areas there. Uh, We have got one on the Pest side. Uh, We call it the promenade, right, George? Yeah. Um, It runs from uh, pretty much the Liberty Bridge up to the uh, Chain Bridge. It's two bridges, and that's where people would come out, uh, take their photos and, and eat ice cream, take their kids over there. Buddha side has got a longer stretch, but because it's longer, it's not necessarily um, just one stretch that people would go. Um, most of the riverbank actually has been recognized by UNESCO, so it's a protected site. Okay. And now they're moving to make it more pedestrian. And this is where, for instance, the European Union comes in that provides us a lot of funds to uh, basically create or to be able to build the dreams of the architects, uh, even though some some of the dreams that you can see are uh, quite elaborate. Well, that's interesting. So there's a sensitivity or a sensibility about the architect had a vision and we need to let our city evolve while respecting the vision of the architect. Right. Um, Not always considering traffic. (laughs) <laughs> There's some modern-day realities. Yeah. How people are going to get from A to B. But. Well, anytime you have a pedestrian boulevard, there's traffic consequences. Well, yeah. But I think people are favoring people-friendly and bicycle-friendly city designs. Exactly. The, is that happening in Budapest now? Overall, the city, yeah. The uh, I, I guess Hungary is the third country in, in the European Union uh, with the most amount of people using bicycles. And that's definitely true for Budapest. So we have got a tremendous amount of bicycle lanes. In lots of areas, they actually brought in uh, several lanes for bicycles, uh, no cars allowed. Mm-hmm. Parliament area is one of these. Um, It used to be uh, full of traffic, and right now it's all pedestrian, and people are enjoying uh, being out there. It's much, much more accessible right now. And Peter was talking about the Danube promenade that is on the Pest side. And remember, Buda is the hilly side, and Pest is sort of the modern commercial side. The venerable palaces and old church and so on is up on the hill on the Buda side. But Pest is where you've got the busy commercial boulevards and so on. And, of course, you've got this big parliament building. It's sort of like our Capitol building and London's halls of parliament put together. It just feels like a little bit of London fell into Budapest. Describe the parliament building. Absolutely. And it's not accidental because our architect uh, studied in London and took uh, Westminster as a model. It's actually almost the same size. Uh, Imagine we only have, you know, a population of less than 10 million right now. And we've got this gigantic big parliament over there. It does feel a little bit oversized for Hungary, I've got to say. Well, but I'm proud of it. It's a beautiful (laughs) building. Well, we must say it was oversized for current Hungary. But if you think in turn of a century. Obviously, the country was much, much bigger. So that's why it was built Oh, that's a very good point. Because was this built as part of the 1896 celebration? Oh, yeah, it was the times of expanding and and when they realized that they need one. And I always uh, say to people that you might feel that it's too big, but we must realize that our edges were cut off, but they can't shrink the parliament. We should remind our our listeners (laughs) that was about 20 years before the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right, right? with World War I. And in the late 1800s, Austria and Hungary, together Budapest and Vienna, ruled a mighty and multi-ethnic empire. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting a view of one of Europe's most beautiful cities, Budapest, from its pedestrian-friendly riverfront promenades that run on either side of the Danube. Our local guides are George Farkas and Peter Poltzman. 
On the Pesh side, we've got the little bit of London Parliament building, and on the other end of the walk, you'd have this amazing Industrial Age Market Hall. George, describe this market hall for us, because it's one of the most dramatic for shopping for produce in Europe, I think. Oh, it's great. Um, And I love how it was an answer to make um, a beautiful, elegant and chic city. Obviously, the designers uh, thought that they can't afford to have boxes and traders and all those out on the street anymore, so they decided to pull them on the roof. So that was it. I didn't know that was an initiative to clean up the streets by providing yeah, a good place. Yeah, because there was a big... competition between Budapest and Vienna, which town can come out with a nicer cityscape. And then, uh, Budapest so Vienna has in... this sprawling open-air market, the Noshmark. Right. And Budapest has taken all that Noshmark uh, chaos and put it in a big a protected square roof. building yep. under a protected roof, iron and Which steel. Which looks like a, a train glass. station, but it had never been a train station. It was built to it's be a market. It's got to be one of the great sites in, in Hungary, I think. Oh, yeah. People enjoy it. We enjoy it. Locals shop there. I think Peter does. He just yeah. lives well, around the corner live, from there. Yeah. yeah. Well, we pick up the kids from the uh, from the kindergarten, from the nursery, and have them walk over to the market hall. They pick out something. I get to eat it. There's a beautiful strudel place. Hey, boy, so, it's gorgeous. Peter, let's yeah. say I'm going to visit you in Budapest and you take me to the big market. Where would you take me? What would we buy? First of all, there's three levels to it. Uh, I really like downstairs because that's where the uh, pickled vegetables are. And oh, yeah. that's one thing that, that locals love. I would definitely take you there. The um, pickles. The pickles, yeah. Oh, oh I love Why them. so many pickles in Hungary? It's just traditional. Uh, when there were no refrigerators, people used to pickle everything oh, for, the, for the winter. If you want to take your vitamin C, you don't go to a pharmacy to pick a vitamin C. You go down to the market hall and then and then you buy pickled vegetables and awesome, it works. So really? I can prove it, yeah. Well, when I was in Russia, it, it wasn't anything about vitamins. It was something to eat with your vodka. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's good for, for certain things too. <laughs> yeah, sanitation. Okay, so you got the pickles and what pickles. else do you have in the basement? The, um, and there's fish as well. So which, the stinky which stuff is, is in the basement. stinky stuff is in the basement. And the good thing about the market hall is that it's a real market and one of the cheapest ones. Recently, they, they uh, ran an article in a Budapest newspaper that talked about the good butchers in the city and among the top three they were in the market holders and, and, and it's one of the cheapest places so I would definitely take you around show you all the knuckles and the hoofs and the tails and everything that, that you knuckles, may Knuckles, hoofs and tails yeah. oh you're stoking my appetite uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Once I met a chef from a Five Star Hotel and he talked about seeing stuff here in the market hall that you cannot get in Western Europe I think yeah. what's also great the ambiance between the shopper and the shopkeeper is still there, so they recognize each other instead of going to these big um, supermarkets. Feel, feel the yeah. So they, they they understand each other. They know what one or the other is looking for. And Olga's calling from Vancouver in Washington. Olga, do you have any memories of uh, your visit to Budapest and walking along the Danube? Yes, I was just recently there. I decided to play tourist because I'm Hungarian. And I decided just to have a fun walking down on the Danube on both sides. And I came across memorials for um, the Jewish people with the shoes. Very moving spot to go and see. It's really hard to describe. You have to be there to see it. So I understand it's like um, bronze shoes in the pavement. Or describe the memorial to us, Olga. Yes, they have shoes that are like men's shoes, women's shoes, high heels, uh, little children's shoes. Mm-hmm. And people, I noticed, were leaving the rocks, like at Jewish memorials, but also flowers, little mementos. But it's just, you can imagine the history behind it, at least what I understood, was that the Jewish people were brought over there, they were shot and then pushed into, into the Danube, but they mm-hmm. were asked to remove their shoes. Oh. And so the shoes are, rep- I, at least that's how I'm understanding it, that that's what the shoes are representing Oh, that them. is very, very poignant to think that they said, we don't want to waste the shoes, and then they would kill them and throw them into the river. Yes, 
So very sad spot, very moving place. And I think it's, it's good to be reminded of what happened in the past. It sure is. Olga, thanks for your call. Okay, thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with George Farkas and Peter Poltzman about the Danube as it flows through the great city of Budapest. If you could both just share with me, let's pretend it's your birthday party, you've invited a bunch of friends, and you're going to go down to the Danube, and you're just going to have a good time. What are you going to do, George? I would probably go down to the um, edge of the Margaret Island that we haven't talked about yet and just sit by the uh, musical fountain and open up a bottle of champagne and enjoy it there. Happy birthday on Margaret Island. Thank That's you. the playground of Budapest. <laughs> and, and Peter? What comes to mind is uh, at the very southern end of the city, there's uh, a beautiful uh, music hall. Um, yeah, I would love to go there. Uh, you can party there as well, and you can listen to music Which too. music hall is that? And this is called The Abrasion is Mupa. It's, it's uh, Palace of Arts, I, I guess. That's how it translates so it's the, into a, a new cultural center. It's a new in cultural center. In M-U-P-A concert hall. Exactly. The Mupa concert hall. A beautiful thing. Peter Poltzman, George Farkas, thank you so much for giving us a better understanding of Budapest. Thank you for having us. It's actually just as close to the Arctic Circle as it is to London. Up next, a guide from the Orkney Islands shares his favorite Neolithic standing stones and prehistoric tombs that you can visit in his island archipelago just off the north coast of Scotland. And a little later, we revisit the times when the kindness of the local people was a godsend in our listeners' travels. You can share your own travel tales with us by email. We're at radio at ricksteves.com. Bonjour, je m'appelle Virginie. My name is Virginie. And uh, in English, you have tongue twisters. In French, we have a famous one, which is un chasseur sachant chasser sans son chien est un bon chasseur. So a hunter who can hunt without his dog is a good hunter. Un chasseur sachant chasser sans son chien est un bon chasseur. It's amazing how much of Europe is dotted with Stone Age sites. The megalithic age is literally the age of big stones. And 5,000 years ago, societies were dragging huge stones into circles to build celestial calendars. They were building underground chamber tombs. They were even living together in underground warrens. While countless thousands side trip from London to see Stonehenge, Few Americans, relatively speaking, ventured to the very north end of Scotland to see perhaps the most impressive megalithic wonders anywhere. That's what we'll be finding today on Orkney, the island about 10 miles north of the tip of the British Isles. I recently ventured to Orkney, and I was so glad I did. My guide was Kinley Francis, and he runs a company called Orkney Uncovered. And today, Kinley joins us to share his expertise on the megalithic art of Orkney and beyond. Kinley, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much, Rick. It's great to be here and to answer your questions, and good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you. Now, I'll never forget the couple of days I enjoyed with you climbing through and around Stone Age sites on Orkney, and you clearly love it. What intrigues you about this slice of history, or, or should I say prehistory? Uh, I just love the fact it's, it's almost a mystery, and no one really knows exactly what happened. Uh, it's just such an atmospheric place, um, particularly the stones of Stennis and the Ring of Brodgar. You can stand and actually put your hands on the stones and uh, you almost feel the sort of energy pulsing through your body. I love it. And I love the, the aurora that we get, the aurora borealis. It looks incredible. And inside Mace, how chamber tomb and so on. I want to talk about the specific sites in a moment, Kinley, but right now I just want to talk in general because it's so hard for me to imagine 
human beings working together in communities. I, I think we can call it culture. Can you imagine how people lived back then? I mean, paint a picture of what life must have been like. I mean, you've got an eight-year-old son, Benjamin, and a wonderful wife. There's three of you huddled without electricity in the cold, barren island of Orkney 5,000 years ago. What was it like? It would have been very difficult for these people. Uh, one of the, the most difficult things was getting fresh water. Nowadays, most of our water for drinking comes from under the ground. Back then, people lived to the age of about 30, uh, maybe 40 or 50, the absolute outside. But it would have been a hard life. But it was a slightly milder climate. It was slightly warmer uh, 5,000 years ago. But with no electricity, no metal tools or anything, it was all Stone Age. It would have been a, a very difficult time. But they were very big, apparently, from what we've seen from some of the things that have been found into fishing and farming and building amazing structures of stone. So we can derive certain things just by the artifacts that survive. And by the nature of things, if it's stone, it lives longer than woven material or wooden material. But even from carved stone material and and remnants of their architecture and so on, we see that they were often more sophisticated than we realize. First of all, Kinley, I'd like to do a little terminology review. When we talk about Stone Age, we're not talking about necessarily or by definition a year. We're talking about the technology. So in one part of the world, the Stone Age could be a different time than another part of the world, depending on how their technology was. Were they working with metal yet? Is that right? Yeah, so these people uh, were were in the Neolithic period, the New Stone Age is most of what we had here in Orkney of the sites, and it was purely working with uh, stone tools and antler uh, from deer. Uh, So um, thousands of years before the metal period of the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. So in Orkney, would you, if you're going to put it in rough terms, would you say the Stone Age, whether the New Stone Age or the Old Stone Age, was that like more than 5,000 years ago or what? Correct, yeah. I mean, Orkney has been continuously lived in for the last 12,000 years, so from the end of the Paleolithic period uh, onwards. And when we say megalithic, you've got the Neolithic, you've got the Old Stone Age, and you've got megalithic. Uh, Is that just another word? That means big stones. So Stonehenge is mega. That's right. So the timeline, as far as we go, is uh, Neolithic is New Stone Age, Mesolithic is Middle Stone Age, and Paleolithic is Old Stone Age. And the megaliths are the big stones that you see in these amazing stone structures. And we've got plenty okay. of those here in Orkney. And then when you finally get more advanced, you've got metalworking, and that gives you better tools and better weapons. And what was it first? Was it bronze and then iron? Correct. It was Bronze Age first um, for a couple of thousand years, then Iron Age, and then moving on to the Viking Ages. So lots of metal, lots of swords. And then prehistory comes in also. I mean, prehistory was... You can imagine, before they were writing their own stories, is that right? So yeah, prehistoric correct. civilizations as opposed to uh, ancient civilizations. Greek and Egypt, that was not prehistoric, so those were ancient. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yeah, those are ancient, ancient period of time. Some of our sites here in Orkney, Scarabray, for example, is about 600 years older than the pyramids at Giza. But there's a lot of similarities to some of these different places across Europe to the same sort of stone structures here in Orkney. You're a student of this, and my my final question, uh, just to get things straight, is can you call these um, societies civilizations? How do you define civilization? Well, civilization for for me is definition, I think, of a group of people or community that have managed to live successfully um, and build properties and, and have 
you know, a very busy working life, a hard graft. So they, and if they're working together, if they're doing projects together, that would be a mark of a civilization. Correct, yeah, and, and they did, yeah. and they traded with the mainland of, of the UK, and uh, they lived for hundreds, the period of time for the Neolithic period was for hundreds and hundreds of years, so it was a very busy place, Orkney, during oh, that period. Well, that's what's amazing. I mean, uh, first of all, before we get into Orkney, there are megalithic uh, remains of Stone Age societies all over Europe. It seems like there's a lot of that in the British Isles. Uh, in Europe, in 5,000 years ago, where would you find the most surviving stone relics of civilizations from this period? There are some, some great places. If we talk about the UK, well, first and foremost, it's believed that ancient man started off in the Orkney Islands for building these stone circles and then further moved down towards places like Stonehenge. So our standing stones of Stennis is about 1,500 years older than Stonehenge. So a period of time of moving as the tidal levels rose and uh, destroyed their, their fresh water supply, they left the Orkney Islands and moved further south. Um, there's another great island just off mainland Scotland called the Island of Arran, A-R-R-A-N. And yeah. it's got an amazing place called Macri Moor with about 10 yeah. small henge monuments. And then going all the way down to Avesbury and uh, to Wiltshire to Stonehenge as well. The, the UK is full of okay. ancient history. So we all, 90% of the tourists, they just go to Stonehenge or Avesbury outside of London and they've seen their uh, megalithic wonders. Correct. But if you want to go to the, the mecca of the megalithic world, you got to go up to Orkney. It's like an hour flight from Edinburgh. It's very easy to get to Orkney. You can rent a car as you arrive and uh, there's lots you can see and do around Orkney. But let's talk about if you were there 5,000 years ago, you'd find more human beings there 5,000 years ago than you find today. Yeah, there's about 25,000 people that live here at the moment. So back then, you're probably looking at almost double uh, the population and most of the islands would be inhabited. Uh, so a very busy community, a an extremely busy civilization uh, for, for a long period of time. Wow, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kinley Francis, and he just loves to share the wonders of his island, the remote Orkney. Um, it's uh, off the north coast of Scotland. It's a home to a surprising number of megalithic monuments. Kinley joins us today. He's the uh, owner and operator of Orkney Uncovered, and his website is orkneyuncovered.co.uk. Kinley, we're on Orkney. It's a small island with, uh, to give you an idea of how small it is, one-lane roads. There's not a single traffic light on the whole island. Is that right? That's correct. There are no traffic lights here in the Orkney Islands, and most of the roundabouts, you just drive over the top of them. Uh, they're, they're, <laughs> <laughs> they're really small. Uh, so, yeah, no, it's, it's it's a great place to live, a great community. And you it. are, and you, if I remember, you're like, I'm, I'm, you're generally taller than the people I'm with, but you're five inches taller than me. You are six foot seven. You got a beard that goes uh, all the way down to the middle of your chest, and uh, you got a bushy head of red hair. Uh, to me, you look like you stepped right off of a Viking ship, and if you did, there would still be people that were ancient to you, and that's the people we're talking about today. Let's talk about Orkney. If you were going to take me on a on a trip around Orkney for a day, what would we find? Let's talk about some of the uh, megalithic wonders of Orkney. Okay, so w one of the best things about the Orkney Islands is that there's so many amazing things that you can visit. One of my favorite places I would take you to first is called the Standing Stones of Stennis. Now, uh, the henge is a ditch that surrounds these stone structures, the megaliths. And when you stand in the center and you clap your hands, your voice echoes around the ring. So 99% of the people who come here have no idea how a henge works, but it's to transfer your voice over an area. So it's incredible. You can sing a song if you wish. So wait a minute. It's, a, a henge is an acoustical kind of moat. 
It is. That's right. The Stonehenge. You got Woodhenge. You got Stonehenge. When you think about those things, the you know we think about the stones at Stonehenge, but there was also earthen um, dimensions to that, and and that's not as uh, easy to survive through the millennia as stones. But you still see traces of those henges. So you in Orkney will have these henges, and you can demonstrate how that uh, improved the acoustics when people were gathering. Correct, that's right. So the definition of a henge, a henge is a ditch or a rampart that surrounds a circle of stone or wooden structures used for ceremonial purpose. So the idea now is this in the is, middle... i got to interrupt you again yeah. because this is so evocative to me. I've had guides in Sweden that take me up to uh, Uppsala and they gathered there in uh, you know ancient times, all the different tribes. And uh, I've had guides in Iceland take me to the place where the tectonic plates of America and Europe come together and there's all that volcanic activity. And in ancient times, tribes gathered there. And in Orkney, you've also got a henge where people would gather together for political or religious ceremonies, uh, for festivals. It's hard to imagine that was going on 5,000 years ago. It is incredible. That's correct. And these people were not people who walked around with a club and didn't know what they were doing. There was a civilization that was drawn in uh, to to build these amazing places to worship and live in peace and harmony uh, for as long as they could. And and the echo from around the Ring of Brodgar, possibly, but also the Standing Stones of Stennis is is quite incredible. So I would take you to those. And then there's lots of places like Maysham. Okay, so that was a standing stones, like a kind of a stone circle, what we might see at Stonehenge. You took me to a tomb that was uh, from 3,500 B.C., 500 or 800 years before the pyramids, and you and I had to bend it down, and and, uh, we're both tall. We bent way down. I had to work out the muscles on my thighs. I had to do it several times with the TV camera rolling. You remember we both came in, and (laughs) it was quite a, a bit of exercise. Got through that tomb, and we stood up in a corbelled vault. It was a beautiful dome, and to think that that was constructed they didn't have a Roman arch. They didn't have a round arch. They had these corbelled, every stone overlapping a little bit to span that top. And it was designed so that on a certain day, the sun would shine through that tunnel that we just walked, right? Correct. That's right. It's called Maze Hill Chamber Tomb. It means the tomb under the hill. And uh, the idea behind it, on winter solstice, December the 21st normally, if it's a clear day, which is a one in seven chance at the moment, um, as the sun sets between the hills of Hoy, it heads into the back chamber of Maysell Chamber Tomb at the lowest point of sunset, which is about quarter past three in the afternoon. What a drag. You got all your family together. You, you hiked all across the island. It's December, whatever. You, you're all there and you're waiting for the sun and it's, oh, it's cloudy. Come back next year. <laughs> I know. It's quite funny, actually. A lot of people think, oh, it's terrible. If you if you speak to the people who run the site at Maze Hall, they will tell you that at two weeks, at either side of the shortest day, the same effect will happen if it's a clear sky. But you really want to be there on winter solstice if you can. But you can okay. see it if it's a clear day. And, and if you look around the island, that's the one that's excavated and discovered. There are a lot of lumps, big yep. pimples in the landscape that are probably unexcavated prehistoric tombs. There's a, there's a massive amount of them, and it's about 90% of the ancient structures here in Orkney have been uh, never been uncovered. And uh, so anywhere you drive, you'll see bumps in fields and, and areas, and those will undoubtedly be something from the ancient past. Kinley Francis is joining us from his home in Kirkwall in the Orkney Islands, just north of the coast of Scotland, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. 
Kinley offers private tours of the island's adventure trails, its historic sites from the World Wars, and even prehistoric sites dating back to the Bronze Age, Iron Age, and the Stone Age. His website is orkneyuncovered.co.uk. So, Kinley, we've got the, the stone circles and the henge. We've got the chamber tombs. And what was very memorable and unique to me was the actual subterranean community. That was Scarabray, right? That's correct. Scarabray is a Neolithic village uh, discovered by accident in 1850 when a powerful storm smashed the coastline of Orkney and unrooted the uh, sand dunes to uncover this amazing village. And walking, I was going to say through that, walking over it, because it's protected, obviously, it's a precious site, but they let the people, the visitors, come and walk on elevated passageways around it. We looked down, and it looked to me like sort of the cross between an underground camp of a bunch of teenagers and uh, a rabbit warren. It was, uh, people must have been a little smaller back then. They must have gathered and huddled together for warmth, uh, kind of like people in an igloo or something like that. And uh, they had sewer pipes. They had uh, tunnels that connected different families. Uh, They had uh, uh, lamps from whale oil. Uh, Tell us a little bit about life in this underground warren of Neolithic people called Scarabray. So, yeah, Scarabray, uh, Rick, dates back to about 5,200 years ago. And originally, the people who lived there lived in freestanding community buildings, small stone buildings, maybe groups of twos and threes. Uh, and then about 400 years after that, they started building a much bigger structures, much bigger village on top of the original uh, and joining it with underground subterranean tunnels. Uh, the buildings themselves are easily high enough in which to fit people in. The only difference is that it was quite small to get into these structures. And the reason behind that is not because the people were tiny as such, uh, but they'd have to duck to get into it to stop the wind blowing them uh, through their tunnels. Uh, but it would have been a very busy little community, probably about 200 people. And it would have overlooked the North Atlantic, an incredible sea view for their village, and that was continually lived in for about 800 years. Amazing. And when you were talking about that, I was thinking almost like trench warfare, people you know, digging down to get out of the, the danger, the wind, you know, the, the whatever was dangerous up above. They, they burrowed in and they lived together. Kinley, of all the moments that you've enjoyed in your studies and in your travels and in your guiding, let's finish this conversation off with just one moment where you were particularly wonderstruck when it comes to megalithic people and the souvenirs they've left us of their lives. For me, it has to be the Standing Stones of Stennis. It's just such an incredible structure, a henge monument that predates Stonehenge by about 1,500 years. And it's just standing in the center of it and be able to speak. If you were there with a group or yourself, you can hear your voice echo back from the stones. It's something powerful in that. And I think when there's the, we get very, very, very lucky that we get the Aurora Borealis here in Orkney quite a lot. So when you're standing there speaking to yourself at night and you can see the Aurora Borealis above you, it's something extremely special. Mm, Kenley, next time I'm in Orkney, I want to be there with you when there's an Aurora Borealis. Thank you for joining us and best wishes with your teaching and with your family and with your life in Orkney. Thank you so much, Rick. I look forward to welcoming you back to Orkney in the future. Thank you. A while back, some of our Travel with Rick Steves listeners shared tales from their travels when the kindness of strangers made a real difference in their lives. Sometimes it's the little things. Sometimes it can save your life. We'll revisit their travel memories in just a minute. 
Sometimes the interactions you have with strangers while traveling turn out to be the best things you remember about that overseas trip. And sometimes those encounters can be a lifesaver. Let's check in with listeners now at 877-333-7425 for reports on the kindness that strangers showed you in your travels. Sally's on the line in Lavelle, Pennsylvania. Sally, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Um, Three years ago, I solo trekked through eight European countries over three months on a shoestring. And, uh, you know, traveling like that, there's an experience of so much of the kindness of strangers. And I was cat-sitting for a few weeks on Lefkada Island, Greece, and each day would go out to swim in the sea. And one day I was out and the, the swells would lift me way high and I'd look out to the sea and see the ships and then way low and I'd see nothing and way high and see the beach, way low, see nothing. Mm. I wondered why the beach was full of bathers, but no one but myself was swimming. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, as I swam to shore after about an hour, the water felt very strange, and before I knew what hit me, I was being hit by what felt like a tractor-trailer truck and a thrashing of a hydraulic, and I went to hurriedly grab my glasses, which I actually was floating and swimming with because I'm quite vision impaired. So as I went to grab my glasses, being hit by a force like I've never felt before, uh, here two men, one on each side, grabbed my hands and they hauled me out of the sea, just out of this suction hydraulic where there was about a, I'd say about an eight-foot straight-down drop that had hollowed out a straight down of the beach, so I would have very possibly broken my neck or or been drowned. And these Greek men, who I'd never met before, I was there alone, hauled me out, saved my life. I learned that two uh, men in their 20s, two strong young men, earlier that week in these same deadly conditions had been killed at that beach. Oh, my goodness. But amazingly... You were one lucky traveler in that case. These two angels showed up. Oh, that's great. And, of course, my glasses were not to be found. You were lucky your life was to be found. I was so (laughs) lucky my life was to be found. My goodness. The next day I was poised to head back across the country alone, virtually blind, Hmm. across the world, actually, halfway across the world. So I went in a little shop in the town, asked if they happened to have any... Uh, discarded old glasses that (laughs) Mm -hmm. I might possibly see a slight bit better to read the signs in the airports. And of all things, they happened to have a contact lens that was the prescription I knew mine to be. And when I asked the price of it, they said, oh, no charge, and refused to take a penny. And I returned home across the world with my one eye. With with somebody else's (laughs) contact lens. Well, from the little eye shop. That's great. Well, Sally from Pennsylvania, those are fun travel stories. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome, Rick. Okay, take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Jay Bruce is on the line in a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Jay Bruce, thanks for your call. Yes, thanks, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. I really enjoy your show. I I wanted to relate a story that happened to me after I uh, left Los Angeles area in 1988 on a sailboat and ended up in Mexico in the Sea of Cortez. 
and I was there for a couple of years, but unfortunately didn't learn to speak Spanish at that time. And I found myself in need of returning to California for a little while, and I had a truck down there. So I uh, got in my truck from near Puerto Vallarta and headed up to California, which is about a two-day drive across the uh, mostly desert. And it got to be about 4 o'clock in the morning, and I was just exhausted and decided that I, uh, I'd better not continue. So I decided I would just pull off the road and find a place where I could get off far enough that I wouldn't be in danger of being hit by anybody. And I pulled down a little dirt trail that I didn't think was much, but there were things growing up all around it, and I couldn't see exactly where I was. Well, I fell asleep, and in the morning, I awoke to a knock on the window, and I was startled awake, and when I looked up, I saw that I had parked nearly right in front of a person's house. And I, there was a woman standing, an older woman standing at my window, and I rolled down my window as quickly as I could and tried to apologize in the little bit of Spanish that I had. And she said, no, 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 no. She said, that's fine. She said, I just wanted to let you know that I brought you breakfast and that if you'd like to go wash up first, you can use the sink over there. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. It was amazing. Here I am, an American stranger, sitting practically at her front door in my truck, and she brought me breakfast. She wasn't even the least bit concerned. <laughs> and this was a, a humble village woman or something? I mean, it's not, It was, yes. Yeah. Just a very humble, very rural Mexican village. Yeah. And, in fact, there was not even a village nearby that I could see. You know, I it bet was, you to this day she remembers a meeting you. Perhaps so, because <laughs> this American just dropped out of some place <laughs> and landed on her front porch. And it never even occurred to her to be angry. Oh, that's and it was the most wonderful experience. And that truly, I've been sailing and traveling by sailboat now since 1988. I've been through all of the Bahamas. I've been the entire Pacific coast of the United States and Central America. And all the time, I've always found that the rural people are all basically the same. Everyone around the world is just friendly people, and children especially are the same everywhere. Little boys tease little girls, and little girls tease little boys back, and everything is just the same as it is in your house, it is my house, and houses in every village and every place in the world. Jay Bruce, i got to say, you sound awfully naive, because the, uh, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of Americans that never get out of their town, and they watch TV, and they'd be scared to death to do what you're doing, because people well, are so dangerous out there. Yes, this is true. Thank you so much, and yes, happy yeah. sailing. All right. Thank you very much. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. The small kindnesses that we experience in our travels can really make a big difference in how we view the world. Share your stories of travel kindness by email with us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Marilyn's on the line in Uricksville, Ohio. Marilyn, thanks for your call. Well, it's good to talk to you, Rick. I understand you've had uh, some memories about uh, encounters with strangers that you'd like to share. Yes. About 10 years ago, my husband and I were in France. We were in the Alsace region. And we were staying in Strasbourg, and my husband always was the tour guide. He arranged all this. And we were staying in a small hotel, and he asked at the desk for directions to the city center. So the desk clerk had told him it was an easy 10-minute walk, so we set off to see the sights. About a half hour later, we decided we had definitely had a problem. 
so since we've been walking along a sort of paved pathway, it was used by walkers and cyclists, and every now and then we'd see a car go by. So we were walking along single file because cars were on there occasionally, and at some point I realized he was not behind me. Mm sort of a six-cent sort of so thing. So you're separated I, from your husband. I turned around, and I spotted him a distance away, and he was chatting with a local gentleman. And the thought that went through my mind was that this ought to be really interesting because Joel doesn't speak any French beyond hello, goodbye, please, and thank you. And so I walked back to where he was, joined them, and, and they seemed to be doing just fine. And the Frenchman was speaking sort of uh, German-flavored English, and my dear intrepid husband was smiling a lot. So he had explained to the man that we were sort of lost and mentioned that I spoke French. And uh, so the man had summoned his wife. So by the time I got there, she was there. And so we chatted back and forth a bit, and she said, en français, of course, uh, that it was indeed a short jaunt. She then got in her car and led us to where the spot where we should have turned and bid us bon voyage. Mm. And it was something that really we never, ever forgot. We Between the two of us, we'd been in 20 different countries. Mm-hmm. And of all the places we'd been, that particular one really stood out. And it came into use for me because I taught French. And almost every year, students would come in and say that their mom, their dad, their aunt, whoever told them that the French people were always rude. Mm-hmm. So I would ask them if those particular people had ever met a real-life French person. Mm. And they almost always answered, well, no. <laughs> so Isn't I, that interesting? It always works that way, doesn't it? The people who are so, the, they're hmm? so convinced that something's wrong with some other place, and you ask them, how do they know? And, well, they don't really know how they know. I guess I picked it up on yes. TV or something. And then you've been there. And you've yes. got the actual first-hand experience. Yes, and one of the things when I started with my first-year students, I would emphasize that different does not make it better or worse. It's just different. And in France, they say vive la différence with that same philosophy, don't they? Yes, exactly. I love and that. It's an acknowledgement that, hey, we can differ. I do it this way, you do it that way. Let's celebrate it. Exactly, vive la différence. Exactly. I traveled with students, I believe, maybe five different times over the years. And I always told them, don't go on this trip if you're expecting to see America, because it's not there. That's not why you're going. You're going to find the different things. Marilyn, I think you're a great teacher, and I would imagine taking kids over to France has been some of the most rewarding teaching you've had a chance to do. The best part was watching their eyes light up. It's one thing to see it in a book. It's a whole (laughs) other thing to be there. Mm. For a lot of families, they can just write the check and send their kids to Europe. But other families really have to scrimp and save. And yes. do you ever wonder, is it worth the financial burden to have families that aren't wealthy figure out a way to get their kids over to Europe on a school trip like those that you led? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, in fact, we had an incident that I had traveled with the same company for several years. And the trip was paid for. It was May. We were going in June. This was many years ago. Made a phone call to the company, and there was a recorded message that the company had gone out of business. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, Great. my career, the whole nah. thing. Somebody here, I know who it is now, but I didn't immediately. Somebody 
called one of the other chaperones and said, do you know another company to contact? I will pay for them to go. Oh, the other this the first company went out of business taking everybody's money? Well, yes. Yes, so they had, this, this was an illegal situation. Wow, so this time. angel came about on board and yes. salvaged the whole experience because you couldn't expect the yes. families to pay twice. No. Oh. The kids were they were more enthusiastic than any other group I had ever taken before wow. or after because they understood how lucky they were. Yeah. What year was well, it when how, that company went out of business? That would have been about 92, Okay, because since then, just so parents and people who are concerned understand, since then I believe there are new laws that require tour companies to hold that money in a escrow, escrow account until yes. they actually perform the tour so that people don't end yes. up paying for a trip that they never get. Hey, Marilyn from Ohio, yes. thanks so much for sharing and good luck with your teaching and your travels. Enjoyed talking to you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Nancy's on the phone in Baltimore, Maryland. Nancy, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. It's really a treat to talk with you. Thank you. Now, you, know, you had an experience in the Peace Corps that, that sounds quite interesting. Yes. Well, I was in Malaysia 7 group back in 64 and 65. I was assigned to a small fishing village on the South China Sea in the state of Tringanu, and I taught hearing-impaired children in the national language of Malaysia, and I was a speech and hearing therapist at the time. I was there almost a whole year living in a little house on stilts in the village, just at the edge of the jungle. And one night I was attacked, and my experience of the kind of strangers really is calling to mind two particular families. One was an Indian family who were neighbors of mine, and I had taught Sunday school to their children. They had so little, and they gave to me from what little they had while I was in the clinic in this little village. They came and brought me a bowl of upuma, which is an Indian dish. It is cream of wheat, some Indian spices. And it was so comforting and so nourishing. And they gave comfort to me in my spirit as well as my body. I have never forgotten the taste of that of that wonderful gift. I was 23 years old and 10,000 miles from home. Oh, my goodness. And uh, it was quite traumatic. But I survived. The other couple who extended such kindness to me also were the headmaster of my school and his wife. They came to the clinic, and she gave me a package wrapped in brown paper, which was traditional gift wrapping, and she said to me, Nancy, when someone we love is leaving us, we give them something of special meaning to us. In this little package was her wedding sarong and her wedding shawl made of kalantan silk with beautiful gold threads all through it, and of course I still have it. I treasure it, and there's a Malay proverb that I think it's just so beautiful for this topic. And it says, We can pay back the loan of gold, but we die in debt to those who are kind. And that's what I experienced through that event that, that 
could have been completely awful, but it was redeemed by the kindness Wow, that's, that is quite an inspiration. You, you very well could have become a bitter person and come back filled with fear and, and anger, but these people helped turn that around. Yes. One of the difficult things was that I was taken to the capital city after four days uh, by Peace Corps staff, and I was assigned to a new school. And one day, as I was coming home from school, from teaching, I felt really ill. I was pregnant. So I chose to carry that pregnancy to term because I absolutely love being alive, and I wanted to give that to this child. As it turns out, it was a full-term pregnancy, and she uh, was stillborn. And so in her memory now, I have a small scholarship here that goes to an inner-city school in Baltimore, and that just gives me such joy, and it means that my body was conquered, but now I can say my spirit hasn't been conquered. It's been a long journey. It has not been an easy one without awful consequences, but on balance, I think it's a story of hope, and I feel that my daughter's message is one of hope and light and love, and that's what she and I together are putting out into the world. Wow, and 50 years later, from a, from a village in Malaysia to Baltimore, Maryland, there's this connection. Yeah. Really, this connection that is really created by your positive spirit and big heart and uh, probably inspired by the care and the, and the thoughtfulness and the love from your neighbors during that Absolutely. horrific day. Whoa. Absolutely. Well, Nancy, thank you for sharing that. I'm sure that it's touched people and, and brought uh, compassion and understanding to people beyond your wildest imagination. That would be wonderful. Well, Good. thank you so much, Rick. Thank you, All Nancy. Right. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. 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 Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeley. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. The Rick Steves Guidebooks, over 50 of them, are consistently the best-selling series of guides to Europe. That's because we lovingly update them in person so you can enjoy maximum travel thrills for every mile, minute, and dollar in your next trip. Find them at your favorite bookseller and at ricksteves.com.